I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. For people who don't know Yonkers, New York, it was a tight-knit, working-class, Irish, Italian neighborhood. You walked everywhere. You went to the ball fields. It was great. Everybody knew one another. It was just a great time to grow up, a great time to be a kid. You were safe walking anywhere you wanted to go. It was just a great childhood. This is Joe Walsh. Walsh played basketball in college, and his goal was to land a job that would keep him close to the game. But in some ways, Walsh's path was already laid out. My dad was a uh, New York City transit cop. He was a boss, so he worked the Bronx, he worked Queens, he worked Brooklyn, he was all over. We used to go to his award ceremonies, which were great, or his promotional ceremonies. It was a very big influence on me. I graduated the academy in December of 1989. My family went down, my grandparents. I still remember I have a wonderful picture of myself in uniform with my grandmother and grandfather. It was wonderful. We went out to dinner. My father felt a sense of pride. You know, I'm going somewhere. I got a decent job. So it, it was just a great day. And then we were told what commands we were going to. And it's like the 3 0. Where the hell is the 3 0? Oh, it's in Manhattan. I go, Manhattan. I knew nothing, nothing of it. And the first time I went there, I was with my dad. We went just to scope out the area. And it's like either Saturday or Sunday morning. So no bad guy wakes up before two o'clock. So we're driving the streets. I'm like, oh, this doesn't seem that bad. It's fine. When I got to the 3-0, I was doing four to 12s. Four to 12s is three o'clock in the afternoon to 11.35 at night. And you hear in the radio, it was just like, man with the gun, drug sales, suspicious individuals. The first job, I'll never forget, chasing a guy with the gun. I'm climbing over a friggin' fence into a basement. We got five guns off the street and a bunch of weight, kilos. It was like, holy crap, where am I? It was awesome. I'm an adrenaline junkie, and I'm like, this is where I want to be. Then I got kicked in the head. There was a radio run in the lower half of the precinct. 
I was with another officer. We go, we knock on the door. The people inside the apartment open up the door and four other cops come in. They start searching the place, tearing it apart, throwing people against the wall. I didn't know if they were taking money. I'm looking at the guy I'm working with, I'm like, this isn't right. We got to get the hell out of here. It was like, what if they take something? What if they do something? We're going to get in trouble. I, I can't do this. This is wrong. But being new, you never wanted to be labeled a rat. I didn't want to be that guy. That's the last thing you want to do is rat somebody out. So I put in what is called a 57. A 57 in police lingo is request for transfer. I did not want to stay in the 3-0. But then I never heard anything from it. I heard nothing and then just every day, that's how it was. And every day I get broken down a little more, a little more, a little more. And I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? Most street drug markets are at most a couple of square blocks. This was covering entire precincts. It was so much different from how I had grown up on Riverside Drive. It was mind-blowing. The 3 precinct, the money on the street was phenomenal. George knew everybody. He was respected in the neighborhood. He was a really good cop. And he says, these cops are ripping off dealers. And George Nova is one of the big guys inside there. I'm Zach Levitt, and this is The Set. Episode 2, The Slippery Slope. In the 3-0, it was only about 22 blocks. But no matter where you went in the command... There's groups in front of every building, staking out their little territory, getting people up to do the sales inside. You had lookouts all over the command. People yelling, by Hondo, by Hondo, or a la pie, the police are on foot. Anywhere you went, it was every corner, packed. Every time we were on patrol, we were trying to outdo one another. Everybody's trying to get the better collar. Get two kilos, get five guns, get all this stuff. I wanted to be the best of the best out of these guys. I wanted to be known as the best cop. Joe Walsh's 57 request for transfer never comes through. And he's quickly indoctrinated into the culture of the 3-0. I started hanging out with the boys after work go to the bar, or we got a couple cases of beer, and then you loosen up, and then, you know, with the loose lips, with the booze, they say, oh, this I made this call, this is how I did it, and I'm thinking, holy crap, you searched the car illegally, and then I, I'm just seeing, it wasn't one guy, it wasn't two guys, it wasn't ten guys, it, it seemed to be everybody. There was a couple guys that did not do it, but almost everybody did do it, bend the rules a little bit in our favor. 
A lot of it was very simple. What we would do to get the bad guys is you'd watch a car from New Jersey. You'd watch a car from Connecticut. You watch a car from Pennsylvania. We'd pull them over. Easy. We would take them out of the car, throw them up against the car, frisk them, and then find whatever we would find. Then we'd say they went through a red light in the back seat. In plain view, I saw a clear white bag that had a white substance, which I believe to be cocaine. Or I saw the butt of a nine millimeter handgun under the uh, passenger's seat. It was like shooting fish in a barrel. It was unbelievable. They're getting guns and drugs off the street. But there's one major problem in all of this. They're breaking the law. The Fourth Amendment requires probable cause for any search of private property. The guns and drugs are there when these arrests are made, but Walsh and the others didn't have cause to make the search in the first place. So they make it up. That's perjury, a felony. If we did an illegal search, everybody knew. It was just standard operating procedure. All the bosses were in on it. David Kennedy, criminal justice professor and director of the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay College, says there's a name for this, for doing the wrong thing for the right reason, like committing perjury to lock up drug dealers. Noble cause corruption. It's officers breaking the law because it's all they can think of to do to protect people who are, in fact, hugely vulnerable and being victimized in horrific ways. And because if they did their job right, nothing happened and the rest of the system did not respond in any way that made any difference. It's a pretty short jump from that to saying, I'm going to do what I need to do here. The culture of policing that had been created by the crack markets was one of accepted lawlessness. And for most police officers, it was lawlessness, they thought, in the service of protecting the community. But it's still lawlessness. And it creates the condition in which everything has to be silenced. And everybody is corrupt. Everybody's lying. And you can't talk about it. You've broken the law, too. And everybody around you knows that. And the only way everybody can get through the day is by not talking about what everybody knows is going on. You didn't see the gun in plain sight. You didn't walk into the apartment and see bundles of powder cocaine sitting on a coffee table. You lied about all of those things. And then if the cases got far enough so that you had to testify in court, you lied about them in court. And everybody knows that you did that. And the only way people get through the day is if everybody covers that up. 
You can't say anything about that. He's got the same thing on you. You have both broken the law. Your peers can only trust each other if everybody lies about what's happening because everybody's exposed. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Officer Barry Brown is doing his best to figure things out. He grew up just a few blocks from the 3-0, and now he's patrolling it. It didn't take long for him to see that doing the wrong thing for the right reason is how things are done in the precinct. There was lots and lots, hundreds of arrests that happened in that precinct where that was happening. And I think a lot of that came from you know, the lieutenants and the captains being aggressive and saying, hey, don't flake anybody. But if the guy had it, he had it. Flaked. Meaning if they took a gun from somewhere else and put it on a guy, if somebody was was arrested and charged with something that they really didn't have. But if the guy had it, he had it. And if it was on him, if it was in the car, if it was under the floor, that's how things were done. I tried to stay away from it. You clearly see both sides of it. Sometimes the laws were so tight and seemed to be so in favor of the criminals and exactly what you had to see in order to make that stop totally legitimate. And sometimes things just would fall within that gray area. You know, the guy looks at you funny. You see something that looks a little weird. I mean, a bulge that looks a little weird. Could it be a gun? Well, sometimes it was, sometimes it was drugs. But so many of these things came down to how an officer 
articulated exactly what what they saw and, and sometimes you know it was that little bit of exaggeration a little bit of added umph I remember there was a call of man with a gun. I think it even came over like man with a machine gun or something. And there was a, a young officer on a foot post right around the corner from that building. And he turned the corner, spotted the guy who fit the description of the man with a gun. The guy had a bulge under his coat. The guy started running. The officer chased him through an alleyway. When they got into the alleyway, the guy stopped. Officer threw him up against the wall and there was not one, but two Tech 9 semi-machine guns on the floor. Brown says that when the young officer came back to the station house, the precinct second in command, a captain, was there to congratulate him on the arrest. He was so excited about this great arrest that this kid made. And he took the case downtown to the district attorney's office to prosecute it. And the case got dismissed. It got dismissed because the officer never actually saw the guy with the guns. He saw a bulge under his coat. He chased him. The guy went into the alley, threw the guns on the floor. The cop stopped him, locked him up. And they dismissed the case because the guy denied that the guns were his, even though the guns were by his feet. And when he came back and said the case got dismissed, the captain was livid, livid. And he screamed about it at roll call the next day. Hey, this is ridiculous. This guy had two guns. Now he's back on the street. He could kill somebody. How stupid can you be? There's two guns sitting by the guy's feet. And you're going to say that you didn't see him with a gun? No wonder why they dismissed the case. If the guy had it, he had it. After that, Nobody wanted to speak to the guy. Nobody wanted to work with the guy. There was all these rumors, I'll stay away from him. And a lot of it was pushed by the captain. And the guy got a reputation of being a rat. And hey, if this guy wouldn't say that he saw the gun, he's a rat. People didn't trust him. And he eventually ended up transferring out of the precinct. Joe Walsh has put his head down and played the game. And that's how he earns a spot in a special group called the Conditions Unit. The leader of the Conditions Unit is a training sergeant named Kevin Nannery. Sergeant Kevin Nannery, he was a great cop. Lots of collars, lots of medals, trustworthy cop. Kevin, stand-up guy. You felt safe with him. We spent many, 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 many hours talking with each other. I trusted him. He trusted me. Kevin would train us to be in his unit the way it was. Not how it was supposed to be, but the way it was. The conditions unit consists of 10 uniformed officers, and their job is to focus on cleaning out the drug dens inside apartment buildings. They get tips on their locations. The way it's supposed to be is that they take that information to a judge to get a search warrant. But the way it is with Sergeant Nannery is that they skip that step and go and boom the door 
which means knocking it down illegally. Whoever's found inside gets charged for whatever's found inside. I had information at 3609 Broadway that there was a hand grenade in an apartment. So I fucking beat this door. It took me a while. The door was all bent. We had to, you know, crawl in and we got the door open. Sure enough, we find a gun and a hand grenade. And then like all the bosses have to come and what do you say about a door, you know, that's all mangled up. Well, we got a hand grenade and a gun. Nobody said a word. Nobody said a word. It becomes a running joke in the precinct with some supervisors that Judge Timberland, as in the boots, has signed their search warrants. But kicking down doors isn't the most elegant approach. So Joe Walsh and Sergeant Nannery's guys begin to evolve. We boomed doors more so in the beginning, and then we got a little more uh, educated. They begin rounding people up on street corners and frisking them. If they find guns or drugs, easy enough. But they're looking for something else. Keys. But not just any keys. Keys to expensive lock sets. In a drug building, that means the apartment is protecting something valuable. Walsh even learns which brands to look for. Medico. You'd see a Medico key, it's like, oh, this is a good key. Let's start with this. And we go, we just look at the cylinders on the doors, see what it is, and click, click, click. Guess what? If it opened the door, whatever we found in the apartment, we found on this guy. Then we just make up the story, say, all right, well, on routine patrol, going up the stairs, we saw Mr. Hernandez opening up the door six feet behind him and clear on a table in plain sight, we saw a scale and on the scale had a white substance, which we believed to be cocaine or it had a gun or whatever we made up. They call them key jobs. Sometimes if nobody's in the apartment to arrest, the conditions unit guys take the guns and they use them to flake other people. So there was a foot pursuit going towards the Hudson River. Big foot pursuit, everybody's chasing this guy. He throws kilos into the Hudson River. Turns, he's like laughing. He goes, you got nothing. You got nothing as you see the kilos (laughs) going to the bottom of the Hudson River. Oh yeah, guess what? Boom, two guns he had. Well, I didn't have any guns. Oh yeah, you had two guns, buddy. We got them off you. So we didn't get them for the two kilos. We got them for the two guns. For Walsh, what may have begun as noble cause corruption is becoming just plain corruption. And with Sergeant Nannery right beside him, there's little incentive to curb it. We get a call at 555 151st Street. It was one of the hottest drug buildings probably in the city. Super hot. 
myself and Nannery, we encountered two people, a guy and a girl. What are you doing? What are you doing? Nothing, visiting a friend. Oh, you're visiting a friend? What's your friend's name? I don't know. All right, what apartment were you coming from? I don't know. Do you have ID on you? Nobody had ID on him. So then we search him, and he had a fanny pack. We open it up, and he has a boatload of money. What are you doing with the money? I'm here to buy a car. Oh, you're buying a car from your friend. You don't know their name. You don't know what apartment they're in. And what kind of car is it? I don't know. And this was every day, people. They just lie to you every single day. It's just maddening. So I had the purse, whatever you call it, his little bag around his waist. And it's like, wow, we're going out boozing tonight. What if I took 20 bucks for the beer? I'm thinking, should I do it? Should I not do it? Should I do it? Should I not do it? It's like the good angel, bad angel. I'm like thinking to myself, fuck these people. They're here to buy drugs. Fuck these people. I'm making $480 a week or whatever I was making. He has five, $6,000 in cash. He's coming to buy drugs to uh, basically kill other people. And, you know, fuck him. I deserve it. So I'm like, 20 bucks, what's the big deal? So I did it and I got the money. We let them go. They were happy. They didn't get arrested. They probably went back to New Jersey. And then we got a couple six packs, went down to Riverside Drive and drank beers on two people from Jersey. It was bright sunshine, beautiful day. And that's when I took it on the side of 151st Street, the first time I took money. The first time was the hardest time, and after that, it was, fuck it. It was like, easy, you know? Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. George knew a lot of drug dealers, a lot of heavyweights that were in that neighborhood. So he knew a lot of people. Even though I was from the neighborhood, I was a lot more sheltered, and I didn't know half the people that George knew. Officer Barry Brown's in the anti-crime unit, and he's partnered up with an old friend named George Nova. Brown and Nova grew up on the same street, only a few blocks away from each other. But that distance made Nova street smart in a way that Brown wasn't. I remember he told me a story once about how when he was like 13 years old, him and a friend of his went over to Fort Lee, New Jersey. And Fort Lee is right on the other side of the George Washington Bridge. So even though it's New Jersey, it's only like a couple miles from where we lived. And I guess some kids that went to the 7-Eleven and left their bicycles unlocked up outside. And him and his friend jumped on a couple of bicycles and rode them back to the neighborhood. I remember he told me that uh, he got questioned about it from a cop in the 3-4 about where he got the bicycle. And he actually sold the bicycle that he stole to the cop in the 3-4 who took it home for his kid. And this is when he was like 13 or 14 years old. By the time he was 17, George Nova knew he wanted to become a policeman. After volunteering in the auxiliary force in the 30th Precinct, Nova graduated from the academy at 20 years old. By the time he partners up with Barry Brown, those street smarts have made him a gifted cop. We arrested a lot of guys on the street with guns. A lot of times he was able to spot people from the way they were acting. I remember one time we were watching a group of guys that were suspicious and, you know, I'm watching the four guys and he's watching the one guy that's like 50 feet away from him and it wasn't even really evident that they were together. And, you know, he kind of clued me in on the whole thing and the more we watched him, we could see that the guy kept going in his pocket and, you know, he was then adjusting his waist. And after a little while, it was quite obvious that this guy had a gun. Sure enough, we approached him, stopped him. And bang, he had a gun, and we arrest him. A supervisor once said about Nova that it was mind-boggling how someone could be so good. He just has the knack. Nova earned 17 citations for excellent police work. But the precinct talks. Brown had heard some rumors about Nova when they first became partners, but Nova told him none of them were true. The rumors continue, though and they begin to feel more like an open secret. I was warned from various people, he's only making all these big arrests because he's getting inside information and tips. He's dirty, he's corrupt, don't trust him, be careful, watch him. That reputation was out in the precinct. 
I confronted him and I asked him, I said, hey, George, I've heard some stories, man. I, I'm not going to be a party to any of that. And he was like, no, man, that's bullshit. I haven't done anything. A lot of people are just jealous because I made a lot of big arrests. And, and I know a lot of people. You know what it's like. We're from the neighborhood. These white cops, they don't trust you. They spread rumors. They're all full of shit. You know, that's how the conversation went, you know. And then he told me that there was one time that, that he did something. And it kind of led credibility to everything because he told me a story that, you know, that he didn't have to tell me. Nova tells Brown that he helped make an arrest inside an apartment where a locked safe was confiscated as evidence. It was brought back to the station to be cracked open. There was $35,000 cash inside the safe, but only about 15000 made it to the evidence room. The other 20000 was handed out right inside the station house, to no less than eight officers. Most were the midnight guys. But George Nova walked away with $400. George said he took the money and he panicked and, you know, put it in his pocket and he kept it. When he saw the officer a couple of days later, the officer said to him, hey, I gave you that money the other night. I got something on you. And that really bothered him more than anything else. He claimed that that was the only time that he ever did anything, and he just panicked. Shortly after that time, he arrested a guy in a vestibule of a building. And George was like, oh, say it happened on the street. Say it happened on the street because we really weren't supposed to be in the vestibule. So just say it happened in front instead of inside or something. It really wasn't a big difference. But a couple of days later, when I saw him again, when I came back to work, he goes, oh, I got something on you. I said, what? And he goes, yeah, I got something on you. You, you said you arrested the guy in front of the building, but it was in the vestibule. I, I, got, I got something on you now. And he was like, oh, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just fucking with you. I would never do that. I kind of, you know, realized that something wasn't right. From that moment on, I started trusting him less and less. And then I remember coming to work one day and George saying he bumped into this guy, Wanchi, over the weekend. He said he knew him from a long time ago and that he owns a bodega there in the precinct on 140th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. A bodega is a small grocery store. There's at least one on every corner in the 3-0. And Nova tells Brown that a friend of his named Wanchi owns this one. We were driving around the precinct. I remember stopping in front of the bodega and Wanchi came out and, you know, was talking and BSing with us in the car for a little bit. And then he left and he went back inside. After that, George started stopping there on a regular basis. Sometimes he would go in and talk to Wanchi. Sometimes I would, I would go in with him for a couple of minutes, and then we would leave. Then he started talking to him more and more and more in Spanish. I thought they were just BSing about maybe going out, girls that they were trying to talk to, or whatever the case was. 
I would wait in a car. He'd say, I'll be back in a few minutes. You know, hang out here. On a couple of occasions after he was in there for a long time, I would honk the horn or I'd get out the car and go in and say, come on, man, let's go. We got work to do. And I'd pull him out of there. You got to understand that every bodega in the precinct, drug dealers were hanging out in front of, going in and out of. And with George, he didn't know what the connection was, if there was a connection to it at all. I wasn't really sure. There was always rumors. There was rumors floating around about everybody in the precinct, practically, including me. But I was in a crazy situation because I was his friend. I was his partner. And I was also an informant. On the next episode of The Set. How many crimes and acts of corruption do you estimate you committed as a New York City police officer? Hundreds. A dirty cop is busted, and a special commission is formed to investigate the NYPD itself. It was malfeasance not to do the right investigation. I mean, this was a no-brainer. It was right there in plain sight. No institution, and you really can't blame the NYPD about this, wants its dirty laundry washed in public. And things have spun out of control for Joe Walsh. I was just putting my gun back. I had it cocked and my gun went off and hit Billy in the left shoulder. Now it's like, holy fuck, holy fuck, holy fuck, what do we do? The set is created, written, and directed by me, Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited by Perry Kroll and Alistair Sherman. Research by me and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales, and operations by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Cutrick. With special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese dennis Tim Clark, Craig Cox, Callum Togus, Rob Morandi, and Eric Donnelly. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of The Set. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.